Well, before I jump into my message, uh, I also want to just um, share something with you that I'd love for us to start doing in the life of our church. As you know, um, we believe here at Chinifesa that we want to help people know Jesus and live for him daily. And I want to talk about the live for him daily part just for a moment. Uh, the coronavirus has changed everything, right? And so everything's kind of wonky right now. And I think we all understand that and see that and things are a little crazy. Well, one of the things that we love here at Chinifesa in our relational environments, and you know that we always are talking about being in a relational environment, talking about hanging out with someone that um, you do life with. And so the question I have for you this morning is, who are your few? I want you to think about that for a minute. Who are the few people right now that you're comfortable doing life with? So you've, you've we, as a result of coronavirus, we've all kind of stopped being in a relationship with certain people. But I imagine there are a couple people that you've decided, I will do life with you. A couple of your close friends, maybe a couple of your family members. But you said, I will continue to do life with you because I believe you're safe and we wear a mask and we do stuff and we clean our houses and whatever, whatever you're doing, you're saying, these are the few people I'm letting in my life right now. I want to encourage you during this season to meet together with those few people and study God's word together, pray, and, and just begin to live for Jesus daily together. Now you say, Pastor Mark, we already are hanging out together. Great. Then I want to, I want to encourage you to take lift the bar a little bit and be intentional at least one time during the week and go through our first Corinthians journal together. So in your first Corinthians journal, you'll notice that there are several places where it would make it really easy to sit down in one of your front rooms or to zoom together and just talk about God's word and dialogue about it and pray together and just encourage one another in Christ. There's several ways you can do it. Day two is the read and reflect where you answer two great questions. What does God want me to know, and how does God want me to live? I think if you grabbed a couple of people and you just talked about that, so we're going to study chapter 7 today. If you read chapter 7 today together, and then you talked about what does God want me to know, and how does God want me to live, that might be your whole 30, 40 minutes right there. And then you can go to your, um, to your share and tell, and your share and tell talks about what you can pray for, what you need prayer for, and what your friend needs prayer for. And then you can pray together. So I want to encourage you, take the few people that you're doing life with now and just take it a little, just make it a little bit more intentional and at least one time, maybe more during the week, get together and talk about God's word. Use the journal as a little curriculum and as a tool to help yourself I'll go further and just be, be growing in Christ. So that's a great opportunity. I hope you'll grab some of the people around you and you will begin to live life together and to live for Jesus together. All right, grab your Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're in this great study in the book of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul does an amazing job of talking to us about how important it is to live for Christ. And uh, so it's a great, great section of verses that we get to talk about um, this morning. 
the Marines have a foundational statement that runs deep in the life and the heart of every Marine. You've probably seen this phrase. It's their motto. It's who they are. It's a term, and they call it Semper Fi. That's right. Semper Fi. We have a Marine right down here. That's right. <laughs> and Semper Fi is their motto, and it means forever faithful. Forever faithful. And what they believe is that my job as a Marine from this day forward is to be forever faithful to my compatriots, my other Marines. Not so much the Air Force, I think, but the other Marines. I think there's a little bit of competitiveness there. But I'm also called to be faithful to the United States of America. Well, as Christians... The Apostle Paul has been talking about that in the book of 1 Corinthians, that we're also called to be forever faithful people, faithful to Jesus Christ and faithful to one another in the church. This is our calling. And today we're studying chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians. And right in the middle of this chapter is a great verse that kind of sums up the whole chapter. It's verse 20. And Paul says right here in verse 20, so everyone should continue to live faithful in the situation of life in which they were called to follow Jesus. It's a great reminder that this morning we are going to talk about two very important concepts that should be understood under this context of always faithfully living for Jesus. Now, living faithful for Jesus is important because we tell those around us, people we work with, the people we play with, the people in our life, the people we live near, we're telling them something important by what we are faithful to. For instance, if you are faithful to a certain car, or maybe to a certain brand even, you say, this is the kind of car I drive. I would rather be found on the road dead in this truck than drive a Chevy. Do you know anybody like that? I know some people like that. They'd rather pull or push their brand. than it. Now, what are they saying with that faithfulness? This is the brand I like, right? Are any of you like this? That whatever restaurant you go to, you order nachos. Like no matter what's on the menu, nachos is for you. What are you saying? Man, I love nachos. I'm faithful to nachos. They're my go-to. See, faithfulness communicates something. When you are faithful to an old shirt or to a sports team or to your alma mater, you're telling the world what is important to you. And when you and I are faithful to Jesus in every area of our life, we're telling the world Jesus is important. When we make choices to honor the Lord, when we say yes to God's word and no to our culture, we're telling the world, we're making a statement about our relationship with Jesus. And the statement we're making is Jesus is number one. What you'll see in my life, what you'll hear in my words what my actions will portray is that Jesus is number one. You will always see me faithful 
to him. Now in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's major theme is helping us live faithfully for Jesus. That's what we're going to look like. That's what we're going to look at. As we jump into 1 Corinthians 7 here, he's going to continue this conversation that he started in chapter 6 as he was talking about being faithful to Jesus in our sex lives. Now, many say that it would be great if the beginning of chapter 7 was just included in chapter 6, but it didn't get broke up that way. And so we're, we're going to look at this just for a minute again because there's some important things that Paul says continuing this conversation about our sex lives. But before we do, let me ask you a question. Have you ever swung the pendulum in the opposite direction in your life in an attempt to do the right thing in the future? Let me give you an example. Maybe you went out and you went to a party and you got really drunk and you woke up the next morning with an awful headache and maybe some other things. And you said, you know what? I'm never going to drink again, ever, ever in my entire life. I'm never going to drink again. Did it work? Probably not. Let's say you go to work and you go to work and you share a deep secret with someone at work and they blab it to everyone at your workplace. And now you're embarrassed, you're hurt, you don't like that person. And so you say to yourself, when I go to work from now on, I'm never going to talk to anyone at work. That's not realistic. But haven't we all done that? Like we swing the pendulum the opposite direction, hoping that it will protect us, hoping that it will be the right way to live. Well, the Corinthian church had done that. The Corinthian church swung the pendulum the complete opposite direction. See, Paul had warned them in chapter 6 and had warned them before about the sexual sin that was so prevalent in their culture because Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the day and sex was just everywhere. It was this totally sex-crazed culture. Paul warned them about sexual sin and so they swung the pendulum the opposite direction and they decided the best thing to do is to never have sex again, even if I'm married. And so Paul starts 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by saying, Whoa, let's not swing the pendulum too far here. Listen to what he says. Now, for my response concerning the issues you asked me to address, you wrote saying, it is proper for a man to live in celibacy. In other words, every man should be celibate. That's, that's what God wants, every man to be celibate. And Paul says, Perhaps, I'm not sure I like perhaps, but we'll get there, right? Perhaps, but because of the danger of immorality, each husband should have sexual intimacy with his wife. And the wife said, amen. And each wife should have sexual intimacy with her husband. And husband said, amen. A husband has the responsibility of meeting the sexual needs of his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Neither th should the husband nor the wife have exclusive rights to their own body, but those rights are to be surrendered to the other. So don't continue to refuse your spouse those rights, except perhaps by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you can both de be devoted 
to prayer. And then you should resume your physical pleasure so that the adversary cannot take advantage of you because of the desires of your body. I am not giving you a divine command, but my godly advice. I would wish that all of you could live unmarried, just as I do. Yet I understand that we are all decidedly different, with each having a special grace for one another, for one thing or another. So let me say to the unmarried and those who have lost their spouses, it is fine for you to remain single as I am. But if you have no power over your passions, then you should go ahead and marry. For marriage is far better than a continual battle with lust. Now Paul says swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction is not going to be helpful at all in your sex life. In fact, Paul says in your quest to live faithful to Jesus, the answer to sexual temptation and sin is a healthy sex life in marriage. That what you should be striving for is to use the gift of God in your life. Now, we remember the reality was Corinth was this very sexually illicit city and encouraged sex in so many wrong ways. Their culture was sex crazy. And so Paul is saying a way to navigate in the world today is to have a healthy sex life in your marriage. And he ensures us that a healthy sex life in marriage will help you with the temptations of the world and diminish greatly those challenges that are in our culture. And so Paul lays out a couple things that will help you have a healthy sex life. Here's the first one. He said, husbands and wives should meet the sexual needs of one another. In other words, all of us have physical sexual needs. And that in marriage, we are called to submit to one another and to allow those needs to be met in the confine of marriage so that God is honored. Second, Paul said, surrender your bodies to one another sexually. Now here's what's interesting. Paul's emphasis is not you owe me. His emphasis is I owe you. That's surrender. It's also interesting that in Christian marriage, this is what we do. We surrender to one another's needs just like Jesus surrendered his life for us. In fact, when you look at other sections of Scripture in Colossians and Ephesians and 1 Peter, you'll notice that a big part of Christian marriage is surrender to one another because marriage helps the world see Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He surrendered his life for us. And so what Paul is saying is surrender to one another sexually so that you're not tempted with it out in the world. Third, he said, don't refuse your spouse sexually. Now, this is important because Paul's saying the opposite of what they were doing. The Corinthian church had decided that since there was so much sexual sin in their city, that they should be celibate and they should start refusing sex with their spouse. And Paul is saying, no, that's not what you should be doing. Stop depriving one another or refusing to have sex with one another. You're married. You can have a healthy sex life. So don't deprive one another of that, especially in a world that when you go outside, 
it is so easy and prevalent to have sex in the wrong ways. See, what Paul noticed, especially in Corinth, and I think it's become true in our modern world as well, that there are so many options to fulfilling one's desires in an ungodly way. And so Paul encourages them to not refuse one another's sexual needs because that's exactly what will help you curve off sexual temptation that the world offers so freely outside your home. Now, Paul said something else that is really important, and I just wanted to point it out because I believe it's so important too. Paul said this, occasionally there's only really one reason you shouldn't have sex, and that is to pray together. I wanted to point this out because last week I talked about how sex is about intimacy. This is another example of this. Paul is saying occasionally in your lifetime you should fast from physical intimacy so that you can grow in spiritual intimacy. Spiritual intimacy with God and spiritual intimacy with another, with one another. And so Paul encourages the fact that on occasion we should fast something physical to gain something spiritual. But Paul encourages here, don't make it last too long. (laughs) And the reason you shouldn't make it last too long is because your adversary will attack you. There's an interesting part of the second half of verse 5 that I wanted to show you. It says, and then you should resume your physical pleasure so that the adversary cannot take advantage of you because of the desires of your body. I wanted to point out something here that I think is very important for us to understand about how we do life as a Christian. Did you notice that Paul is telling us that the adversary of our life is always trying to take advantage of us? Did you notice that? That's his job. That's what he does. That's all Satan does. He's always trying to take advantage of you. And he probably knows where to push your buttons. Well, in our world that's totally sex crazy, he will try to take advantage of us in this way. And so we have to be on the guard, on our guard. If you're single, you need to be on your guard. If you're married, you need to be on your guard. Because the adversary of our life is always going to try to push our button there. Now, someone in the room might be saying, is Paul just some married guy that just wants more sex? No, Paul's actually single. It's interesting that several of the greatest sections about marriage are written by a single guy. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, Paul says there's also another option to faithfully serve Jesus in regard to your sex life, and that is to remain single. Paul says there are certain ones of you that will be called to live single. And he actually says living single can be better than living married. Here's what he says in verse 7. 
He says, I wish all of you could live unmarried just as I do. And in verse 38, he said, the one who marries his fiancée does well, and the one who chooses not to marry her does better. Well, that's interesting. Paul actually communicates that living single can be better than living married. Now, why would Paul say that? Let me give you some reasons. Paul doesn't not believe that marriage is important. He absolutely believes marriage is important because he talks about it a lot. We're going to talk about it in a minute because he talks about it the whole rest of the chapter. But what he's saying is this, that life can be hard for Christians. In fact, in the first century, life was very hard for Christians. Persecution was very common. Many Christians were sacrificing their lives for Jesus, just like he did for us. Did you notice in verse 8, he said, so let me say to the unmarried, and then this phrase, and those who have lost their spouses. There had been a lot of people that were losing their spouse to persecution. And so Paul says a single person can actually devote all of their time, all of their attention, all of their direction to Jesus Christ, to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so Paul says there are times where it can actually be better to be single so that you can concentrate all of your time and attention on Jesus and the kingdom, but that you will need to be called to that. You will need to be called to that. And that if you're not called to that and your passions are getting a hold of you, then you should go get married. Now, let me point out why I think this is important and why I think um, I want us to understand what Paul is saying, what the word is saying, and what I'm saying this morning. Here's why. I often hear things like this. I know I've said it. And I've, I've heard other people say it in the church to a single person. Something like this. You know, I'm going to start praying for you to get a spouse. Because when you get a spouse, then you'll, then you'll really be fulfilled. <clears throat> that is theologically inaccurate. Who is the only person that completely fulfills us? Jesus. I know lots of married people that feel unfulfilled. Lots of single people that feel unfulfilled. I know lots of single people that are completely happy being single. And I know lots of married people that are totally happy being married. But it's not true fulfillment. Each and every one of us only receives complete and total fulfillment and identity and purpose and mission when we are in relationship with Jesus Christ. So the purpose and the pinnacle of our life is Christ, not marriage or singleness. So Paul encourages the church. Being married is important. Being single is important. But when it comes to your sex life, don't deprive one another. Have a healthy sex life in marriage that will help you curve temptation. Now Paul takes the rest of the chapter to talk about the covenant of marriage. And the importance 
of the covenant of marriage. And let me conclude our time by talking about it as well. The important and powerful understanding that we all eventually must wrap our thoughts and our emotions and our philosophies around about marriage is that marriage is God's gift to mankind. Marriage is a covenant relationship before God and that God knows what's best for us, either to be single or to be married. God knows what's best. Now, there are also some challenging concepts about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. As you read through 1 Corinthians 7, you're going to hit some challenging concepts about marriage. And I would say that the concepts are challenging mostly because we have a diminished view of marriage in our culture. The same was true for the Corinthians. They didn't have a godly view of marriage. They had a worldly view of marriage. They defined marriage differently than God's word does. They understood marriage to be between different kinds of people than God's word talks about. And so they had a diminished view of marriage, not a, not a high standard of marriage, a very low standard of marriage. Now, if you had to pick in the American culture right now, do we have a high standard of godly marriage or a low standard of what we'd all like marriage to be according to our own devices? I think we're down here somewhere, aren't we? So when we read things in God's word about a high standard for marriage, we often go, whoa, could that be true? Yes, it is true. Because we're operating in a low standard of marriage, it makes a high standard of marriage look like that's not what we should shoot for. But it is. If we're going to live faithfully to Jesus, then we need to shoot for the high standard of marriage. And God views marriage as a covenant. Our culture views marriage as a contract. And a covenant and a contract are very different. A covenant is based on trust between parties, while a contract is based on distrust. A covenant is based on unlimited responsibilities of one another, while a contract is based on limited liability. A, con a covenant cannot be broken if new circumstances occur, while a contract can be voided by mutual consent for any reason. It's interesting that as you read throughout Scripture, God is in the habit of making covenants and keeping them. Let me give you a couple examples. God made a covenant with Noah. And the covenant said this, I will never again flood the waters of the earth. And every single time you see a rain rainbow, it will remind you of my covenant, of my promise. Every single time you and I see a, a rainbow, it's a reminder and I should say a rainbow in the sky from the rain. That's what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> the, 
Whenever you see a rainbow in the sky, it is a reminder that God has kept his promise and he is not flooding the earth. And I think we could all look around and say, would God have proper justification to flood the earth? He might, but he's not because he's keeping his promise. God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, he said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, God said this. He made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to Abraham, from now on, I choose your family. And that's why the Jews are still here today. Why they still have their own nation. And that's why at the end of time, when this earth will cease to be no more, everything will be focused in this culture and on our planet around a little tiny nation the size of the county of Spokane on a little hill in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because this covenant will stand forever. God made a covenant with David. He said to David, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Well, how could Jesus make David's kingdom and throne last forever if David's gone? Simple. Jesus was a descendant of David. And Jesus' throne is forever. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will last forever. And therefore, this covenant that God made with David is lasting forever. You and I have a covenant with Jesus. At the Last Supper, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he said this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What you and I believe happened on the cross is the way Jesus died is he lost all his blood. That's like the, the official medical term would be he, he died of blood loss. That blood that he lost for you and I. But guess what? That blood is a new covenant for you and I that sets us free from our sin, that forgives us completely. And there is now no condemnation for you and I who are in Christ Jesus because of the blood of Jesus. A covenant that he started with you and I on the cross. And when we say yes to Jesus and we believe in Jesus and follow him, we live under that powerful covenant. Now God sees marriage as a covenant. God sees marriage as a covenant. Jesus affirmed covenant marriage and, and the truth that marriage was God's idea from the beginning in Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Look at it with me closely. You can see it on your screen. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. 
Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now these are challenging words. These are challenging words in a culture that says what? You can divorce for any reason, any and every reason. They're challenging words in a culture that has a low standard of marriage. But as believers, we want to have a high standard of marriage and live faithfully to Jesus in regards to that high standard. Since we represent Jesus on the earth as believers, we're called to live faithfully for Jesus words. And this is what Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 10, Paul said, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him and the husband must not leave his wife. Now I speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. Let me just stop there for a second. This is a small section of scripture in the New Testament where Paul specifically says, hey, I want you to know something. Um, I didn't get this directly from the Lord, but I'm just going to give you some advice. It's one of only very few short sections of Scripture that we have in the New Testament. And I just wanted to preface that, that this is not a command of the Lord, but it is what Paul is suggesting. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you, and don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Now, the key to this section is verse 16. The key to this section is understanding that there is also another covenant that is extremely important, and that is the covenant of salvation that every person can have with God. And in that covenant, you and I need to be firm and secure, and we need to really live out this covenant very strongly and passionately. And so Paul says, 
if you're, if you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, but they're willing to live with you, then you should continue in that because the most important thing that they need is salvation with Jesus, and you can live that out in front of them every day. And so now you get to give them an opportunity every day to see the holiness of Jesus living in you, and hopefully they would choose to live under the covenant of salvation that you have chosen in Christ. But to raise the standard of marriage. So Paul echoes the words of Jesus and reminds us that to live faithfully to Jesus will mean having a high standard of marriage. That chooses not to divorce except for adultery or if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave. Now the point here is to live for Christ. In whatever place you are at, live for Christ. If you're single, live for Jesus. If you're married, live for Jesus. If your marriage is struggling, live for Jesus. If you're living with an unbeliever, live for Jesus. Raise the bar about marriage and about your life and live faithfully to Jesus. Now, let me point out quickly here. For those of you that have been divorced before or are divorced now, can I just say, none of this implies that if you are divorced, that there's no grace for you. I want to be clear. It doesn't imply at all that forgiveness is not reigning in your life. It doesn't imply at all that you can't be forgiven. It doesn't imply any of those things. Because there is always grace in Christ, and it is always amazing. Amen? Yeah. Always. And so the forgiveness of Christ always reigns supreme. The grace of Christ always reigns supreme. But that does not stop the fact that we need to have a high standard of marriage. Amen? And what does that mean for us today? It means that you and I get to move forward today with a clear understanding of God's proper view of sex in marriage and singleness to have a high standard of marriage and to understand that none of us find fulfillment in just singleness and marriage, but we always find fulfillment in living faithfully for Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's what we're shooting for. Faithfulness to Jesus, no matter where we are at or what circumstance or situation we are living in. Chapter 7 does another great job of presenting another opportunity for you and I to choose to live faithfully for Jesus instead of living in the culture. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Have a high standard for your life. Don't lower your standards to the culture. Raise the bar. Let's all, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, live faithfully to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for these words this morning. Words that remind us how blessed we are in Christ. 
how amazing it is to get to live for Jesus every day. Lord, would you help us with that? We're about to be dismissed and leave this room. And when we walk out that door, the world is totally different than in here. The morality is different. The ethics are different. The standards are different. The rules are different. What life looks like is different. And Lord, you call us to a high standard as believers. You call us to this high standard because you want what's best for us. You love us so much. You don't want us to get hurt or to live in pain or to hurt one another. And so you ask us to live in in these ways so that we can honor you and so that we can have lives that are enjoyable and peaceful and hope-filled and loving and gracious. That's your plan and your desire for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that, to live faithful to your word, to the voice of your Holy Spirit, and to the commands of God that we find in the New Testament, in the Old. We give you thanks and praise this morning for what you're doing, Jesus. And would you help each of us in the situation we're at to live faithfully for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.